Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Olivia Mentor. And today we're talking to author and bookstore owner Emma Straub. I am very excited for you all to listen to this one. Before we get into it, though, should we do some highs and lows? Yes. Tell Tell me me your high. Jinx. (laughs) Tell me your high. Okay, fine. My high was that Jake went away for the weekend and he likes to like go camping and hiking. And I'm not sure why he has to hike and then also sleep on the ground after walking on the ground outdoors. Fully agree. But he did that. I'm glad that he has his thing. I'm happy for him. And then... On the flip side, I had a weekend to myself. I do not have that very often. So it was just me and Winnie. I rewatched the first season of Bridgerton because I never had like fully watched it. And it was just great. And I read my book outside in the sun. We went to the farmer's market. I ate like a pastry in the park alone. I was just like in silence all weekend too, which is amazing. Just like the quiet, just my own thoughts. It was great. I I loved it. I love that for you. One one question back to Jake. Is he doing this by himself? Indeed. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. So I had to have him write me like a document. I was like, you need to tell me who I need to call and when should I not hear from you by XYZ time. He did have like one bar of service, so I was getting updates. But yeah, he's very into camping and hiking and spends like many months like planning it and like weighing the items that go into his backpack and buying all this expensive gear. I don't know. This sounds like the beginning of a thriller. It really does. He actually texted me while on the trail and he said, these old men just came up to me. I haven't seen a single person, he said, and these people came up to me and they were like, so you hike a lot? And I was like, Jake, that is what that is what the killers say to you before they later come back and murder you. And he was like, they were fine. They were nice. I was like, "Mm, and then you're going to get dragged into this and have to go track down these old men to avenge Jake's death. It's not fair to either of you. Exactly. Exactly. It would be terrible. So I was a little bit stressed out, but in the end, it was good for both of us. I think (laughs) maybe this is book two. Maybe. What is your high? Well, so I was all geared up for this to be my low. And it has, in the past 24 hours, turned into my high. So I mentioned a few episodes ago that I started running. I can't really explain why I started running, but I did. And I've been doing a Couch to 5K program. I'm using this app called 5K Runner, which I do like and recommend. It's a yellow app icon. Um, Just saying that because I've been getting some DMs about it. And the program adjusts depending on uh, at the end of every workout, you can tell them how hard or easy the run was. And if you say it's too hard, it adjusts. And I've been stuck on the same run for over a week because it was too hard. And I feel silly saying that the longest interval run in it was four minutes, but I'm not a runner. There were four intervals. It was three, four, four, three. And I just I could do it, but it wasn't comfortable. And so I'd been stuck and I was getting really frustrated. Uh, Yesterday, I broke through my plateau. I'm not going to say it was easy, but I did it. And that was really cool to actually see proof that I am getting better at it. That is so rewarding, that feeling. So rewarding. I'm now terrified because tomorrow's run, the longest interval being five minutes, but... 
that's tomorrow me's problem. Yeah, exactly. It's building blocks. That's you should be really proud of yourself. I am. And I'm really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying the being outside, the blasting rap music in my ears. Part of it at, you know, three minutes and 45 seconds of the four minute interval. I'm not enjoying it, but I feel a, a sense of satisfaction. It's exercise that I do generally, generally enjoy. Yeah, that's amazing. Good for you. It seems like it's something that's sustainable and that's kind of the most important part and that you enjoy it. So I hope so. I'm a little bit worried for what happens when we get to the very hot part of summer or the very cold part of winter, because I could see this going by the wayside very quickly. Would you rather run in cold temperatures or blazing hot temperatures? I guess cold, but it doesn't sound appealing. What about you? No, I think I would do hot because cold, that thing happens where your ears start to just hurt so badly mm. that and your nose, I, you have to wear a lot of gear and you're sweating anyway. I don't know. I'll stick to the treadmill, I think. What about lows? My low is kind of a bummer. Um, I am going on a trip with my two of my best friends from forever. Basically, we've known each other for our whole lives. And one of them is actually moving to England and in the process of getting uh, a visa for that and everything. Anyway, because of that process, she had to send her she had to send her passport in and everything is delayed and we leave in two days and she does not have her passport. So it's kind of looking like she's just not going to be able to go. It's, you know, not going to be the same. Like, I'm sure we'll still have a great time, my um, other friend and I, but we've been planning it for I don't know, like four months, five months. So kind of sad. Um, That's such a bummer. And it's such a bummer that it's out of her control and that it's just bureaucracy's fault. Yeah. And she said she's been emailing like everyone trying everything and it's just like not happening. And oh, it sucks. I mean, there's still the chance that a miracle could happen in the next 48 hours. But if not, my friend and I, who will still be going, have said we're going to do a flat Stanley of her. You know, Cute. did you ever hear of flat Stanley? I sure do. <laughs> and, just, and just carry it around everywhere. So I'm sure we'll look really normal. But but yeah, what is uh, your low? Oh, my low is that my period has entered the chat. <laughs> I am having the worst period cramps today. I was saying to you before we started recording, I'm, I'm kind of at this place. I, I've always had bad cramps. I think they've gotten better as I've gotten older. Now it's kind of roulette where once every three or four months, I'll have a really bad, painful period. And this is that month. And of course, I would rather have fewer that are painful. But it, the surprise of it is is not a fun surprise. Yeah, I we were just talking about this, but I can 100% relate. Mine are more consistently terrible, so I know what to expect, but it's always so painful. What is your go-to relief method? Are you heating pad, Advil, Midol? I, I don't know. I am Tylenol and the stick-on TheraBody heating pad. Ooh, that's I've never actually used one of those. I've used something similar, but that seems like it could help a lot. Oh, it helps a ton. Hot tip. Do not get the menstrual cramp ones because they're less hot. So I like the ones that are for your wrist and upper back and shoulders. And so it's about the same size. It's the correct size, but it's hotter. 
And I find that to work pretty well. And you can just stick it on under your clothes. So even when I was in an office, it's not obvious as opposed to, you know, having a plug into the wall heating pad or like the hot water jug, which isn't really portable. Yeah, I have both and neither are convenient to access when you wake up at like 3 a.m. and you're absolutely miserable. So I'm going to invest in some of those. That was that was a real pro tip. Thank you. Here to help. Here to help, folks. And I hope you feel better. Thank you. (laughs) Well, before we talk to Emma, let's take an ad break. As some of you may know, I'm on month two of a year-long challenge to quit takeout and delivery. So far, the absolute key to this has been having my pantry, fridge, and freezer stocked with things that are delicious and are easy to make, quick. That's why I am so excited about Daily Harvest, which delivers delicious harvest bowls, soups, flatbreads, snacks, smoothies, lattes, and more, all made with organic fruits and vegetables. Yes, I'm so excited that they're a sponsor. We were actually talking the other day about how excited we both were about the different items that we got in our boxes and comparing our orders. So one thing that was a real surprise to me was I got one of their Harvest Bakes, which I didn't know existed until this order. I tried the Gigante Bean and Artichoke one, and I love anything artichoke. I had it as the base of a dinner along with some rotisserie chicken, and it was such a tasty and way more interesting meal than just heating up some boring old broccoli to go with the chicken, which is what I would probably usually do. That sounds delicious. Um, I had heard of Daily Harvest smoothies before, seen them on Instagram, all of that, but it was actually some of their other items that I found myself reaching to first when I opened my box, although I am very excited to try the smoothies as well. The first thing I tried were the raspberry and fig bites, and they are seriously the perfect little treat for after a meal. Jake loves them too. I was most pleasantly surprised, though, by the sweet potato and wild rice hash bowl. When I tried it, I had been having a busy day and I warmed it up for lunch, which was ridiculously easy, by the way. And it was the most comforting, delicious meal. I loved it. Oh, I have this one too, but I haven't tried it yet. I'm excited. It's very good. Not only is the food delicious, but I love knowing that I have quick, healthy items that I can grab throughout the day, no matter how busy things get. And I have to say that I'm really looking forward to discovering what else Daily Harvest has to offer. If you're curious about Daily Harvest, just like we were, or are trying to cut back on delivery orders like me, avoid the takeout temptation and get Daily Harvest. Go to dailyharvest.com slash BOP to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com slash BOP for up to $40 off your first box. dailyharvest.com slash BOP. We are so excited to be joined today by Emma Straub, who is the New York Times bestselling author of five novels, including This Time Tomorrow, which came out on May 17th. And she is also the owner of Books Are Magic, an independent bookstore in Brooklyn. Welcome, Emma. Welcome. Thank you for having me. These are all true things. Those are true (laughs) facts. And I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited to have you. I mean, first of all, I'm a big fan of your novels, but also I don't think we have ever had a bookseller on this podcast Well, I'm delighted to be your first. I'm here for all of your book selling questions, all of your book selling needs. You just let me know and I'll, uh, I'll be your bookseller. Well, before we talk about book selling, can you tell us a little bit about your path to become an author? I want to know if you always knew you wanted to do this, if it's something you went to school for, like what was your, what was your journey? 
Yes and yes. So my dad is a novelist. He has written 20 plus novels. They are scary novels. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, in the way that like when children grow up and their parents, whatever model you have, you're like, that seems like a good job. And so writing always seemed like a really reasonable career path to me. (laughs) I was never interested in anything else. I did try to work in publishing in my early twenties and that didn't take, but yeah, I started writing novels the second I graduated from college, really. And it took me about 10 years to publish my first book, but I was very, very, very lucky. Supportive parents and partner and just everybody always believed as I did that it would happen. It was just a matter of time. And so, so I published my first book when I was 31. But yeah, in those years, in my 20s, I also did go to an MFA program eventually when I got tired of publishers rejecting all my manuscripts. (laughs) I was like, maybe I should try to make them better. (laughs) How about that? And I did. I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for an MFA program. And I loved it so much. I loved it so much. I studied with Lori Moore and it was just heaven. And then I came home back to New York and published my short story collection. And by then I was working as a bookseller at Book Court. Yeah. And then I sold the novel. Ever since then, I've been on the novel train. I feel like that's so interesting because even as someone who like knew what you were going to do your whole life, you had total confidence. It just goes to show you how sometimes weird and unexpected like publishing is that it still was 10 years until that first novel was released. But very interesting and extremely inspiring. (laughs) I will thank you. I think that the thing was that I had the like drive and the confidence and the dedication, but what I was writing just wasn't good enough yet. There certainly are those people. I hate them most of the time (laughs) who are, you know, 23 years old or 25 years old who are brilliant and who publish their first books, but that's not most of us. You know, most of us need a little more time to cook and to practice. So yeah, I'm actually like now really glad that I did not publish any of the books (laughs) that I wrote in my twenties because they were terrible. And, and then I, I don't know if I would have gotten any better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you that. So it's interesting. You brought that up. Um, Do you ever go back and read any of them? Or are you kind of like, we're not going to go there? (laughs) Oh, good Lord. No. Yeah. Once like maybe I guess twice, you know, it's like whenever you like uncover the box, peek inside (laughs) and read a little bit, like there, there is one, I wrote four books that never got published. And out of those four, the first one really had something just because it was wild. It was like Wuthering Heights set at my high school. Ooh. <laughs> it was like, it sounds great, honestly. It was like very sexy and just utterly demented. Um, <laughs> but the other ones, I was trying too hard and I had no idea what my voice was. So now when I go back and look at them, I mean, honestly, even when I go back and I look at my first novel that was published, Laura Lamont's Life in Pictures, which I'm very proud of, even then, like I look at that novel and I think, oh, I I still hadn't quite figured it out yet. Like I still hadn't quite like clicked into gear. There's something so embarrassing about that, but it also... I mean, it's good because it means you're growing. Like when I listened to our first season of Rom-Com Pods, I, I cringe at some of the writing that it was like, yeah. wow, could we have been any more obvious about that? 
(laughs) I can't listen to it. And I'm like, oh, I guess that's progress, at least in some ways. Yeah, I think growth is good. You know, I'm far enough away from really like all of my books, with the exception of this time tomorrow now that I look at them and I'm like, I would have done that differently. And Hmm. that's fine. Well, we're so excited to talk about this time tomorrow. Can you give us the pitch for the book? Yeah. So this time tomorrow is, um, (laughs) it's my autobiographical time travel novel. It's about a woman named Alice who is about to turn 40. She's a native New Yorker and she, her life is not terrible, but it's also not great. Like she's sort of treading water in her personal life and her professional life, like sort of across the board and her beloved science fiction writer father is dying she goes out with her friend on her 40th birthday and gets way too drunk and passes out and when she wakes up she is in her childhood bedroom and it's the morning of her 16th birthday in 1996 and her dad is young and healthy yeah it goes from there I finished the book last week and I loved it. And I was just telling Becca this, but I actually read it. I was on a trip with my like high school best friend. I was talking to her like about the premise of the book and how I would go to her first and have all those same conversations. So I, I really, I really enjoyed it. I found it so charming and, and lovely. So thank you. It. Thank you. Sweet. You said it's autobi- semi-autobiographical. Are you a city kid? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that yeah, about yeah, you. Yeah. Yes. I love this. I feel like this book kind of let me see a side of my own city that I never experienced, having never lived here when I was a teen or lived here in the 90s. Yeah. Did you keep journals or like how did you tap oh, into yes. that? Yes, I do. I, I mean, I have all of my diaries for my whole life. Oh, I'm so jealous. Um, I mean, they're horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> they're horrifying, <laughs> but rich and full of material, but also like it really is autobiographical. Like my father is okay, but he spent several months in the hospital in the ICU in 2020 when I was writing the book. And all I wanted was, I mean, it was 2020. And so I was like home with my kids doing like pretend Zoom school. And my husband was at our bookstore keeping the lights on over there and shipping books out. And my dad was really, really sick. And it was just the worst. And I know that (laughs) I am not alone in having had a terrible time of it. You know, I think we each had our own miserable existence, but the way that I dealt with it was giving myself this escape hatch and just like getting out of here. Like, even though I was here, I was in my little room in my house. Like I was in my office. As soon as I had childcare, I was like, where do I want to (laughs) be? Like, I want to be sitting at the kitchen table with my dad watching Jeopardy. Like, that's what I want. I want to be able to call Jackson Hole on the corner and have them deliver us hamburgers. And like, I just wanted to be, you know, like all of those feelings. If you just close your eyes and imagine yourself at your childhood dinner table, I just wanted to feel like safe and comfortable and loved and taken care of. So that's what I did. Like really this book was a total gift to myself in that way where I was just, I don't know, like, will my readers 
follow me to time travel? I don't know. You know, will people like this? I don't know. Is my editor going to think I've absolutely lost my marbles? I don't know. But I, uh, but I did it anyway, because it was so pleasurable to do it. Let's take an ad break. I feel like I'm really susceptible to marketing, which is funny because I am a marketer. But my attitude is always, yeah, I'll try that or I'll definitely use that thing that I saw an ad for once or I have to watch that show that everyone's talking about on the streaming service that I don't have. And then I sign up for whatever service and I forget to cancel it. But the service that you won't regret signing up for is Truebill. They're a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. On average, people save up to $720 per year with Truebill. Because companies make it hard to cancel subscriptions, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. You simply link your accounts and Truebill will help you cancel unwanted subscriptions in one tap. And they have a really cool concierge offering. So if getting on the phone and dealing with customer service is what's stopping you, they can do it instead. So I went through the setup process a few months ago, and I also want to mention that their base service is completely free. But I logged in this morning and I found even more services that I had signed up for and don't need. First of all, my Equinox subscription for my SoulCycle bike that I haven't gotten on in months, gone. My Peacock subscription that I forgot was even active, also gone. My Microsoft Office subscription that I forgot I'm paying for on a monthly basis and wasn't just a one-time purchase when I can just use Google Docs instead, also gone. I love that it's easy to see everything all in one screen, and it makes it so much more obvious than cruising through your bank statements. It was really kind of a small thrill to save myself so much money in one morning. Truebill has over 2 million users and has helped them save over $100 million. Like one of their customers, Matthew, says, In a matter of seconds, I saved $600 for the year on my DirecTV bill, saved $120 for the year on my SiriusXM bill, saved $840 a year on car insurance. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash BOP. Go right now. Truebill.com slash BOP. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com slash BOP. It's interesting that you said it was your escape hatch and your experience, because for me, I felt like reading it was very personal because you are going back to your childhood <laughs> dinner table and your childhood bedroom. And so it felt like, yeah, it kind of felt like a like an introspective gift to the reader as well, because you're kind of going on this journey with you, but it's your own. So it was really interesting. Thank you. And that's what I have come to understand, not just through writing, but through reading also, is that like the more specific you get and the more personal and idiosyncratic an experience you describe, the easier it actually is for someone else to like come in that experience because you've given them everything. And then the reader can't help but sort of bring themselves into it and empathize and be in that character's position. So yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad that worked. <laughs> Even if you can't relate to growing up in New York City or if you can't relate to, you know, having this father who's a, a famous writer, I think there's something so universal about Alice goes back in time to to kind of relive her botched experience with her her like first <laughs> big love. That pulled at my heartstrings so much because I was like, "Oh, I know exactly who that is for me." 
exactly <laughs> who that is. And it's like re-experiencing yeah. that as an adult where it's like, how do you feel about this person now? But there's something so nostalgic about this person. And do yeah. you want to do it differently or, or not? Like, ooh, that's so universal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we all have those people where we think, oh, if things had just been a little bit different, XYZ would have happened or XYZ wouldn't have happened or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to give away spoilers, but, but I will say that like for Alice, the character in the book, it was really fun for me to sort of follow her down those different little rabbit holes and see what answers she came up with. Yeah. And speaking of tiny details or things that were super vivid, the setting of, and I might be pronouncing this incorrectly, Pomander. And then I looked it up and it was exactly how I imagined it reading the book. And it's incredible. So were you familiar with it? Did you live there? Did you know people who live there? So I grew up on 85th Street between Central Park West and Columbus. And Poyander Walk is on, it's on 95th Street between Broadway and West End. So it was very much in my neighborhood, but I never knew anyone who lived there. And I don't think I... I don't think I knew it existed until I was in my twenties, but I just love, I love tiny streets in New York city. Tiny streets in New York city are my favorite. When I was 23, I think for a year and a half, I lived on patch and place, which is in the West village. It's like a little one block, little muse off of 10th street. And all these amazing writers used to live there, like E.E. E. Cummings used to live there, Juna Barnes used to live there, Theodore Dreiser, Marlon Brando, all these like very glittery people. And I loved the idea of using Pomander Walk like that, that like, it's just a place. I mean, it's, it's locked, you know, like there are, there are gates, so you can't just walk in as you can with many other of the other little muses in New York City. But I just thought if there is something magic on the Upper West Side, <laughs> that is where it is. And it just like, it just worked for me as this tiny special place sort of, you know, within like a little microcosm version of like what I was imagining, which was like, you know, this safe, special place inside this huge city. And yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm a sucker for, I don't know, anything that has Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe vibes, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> which I think it does. Like, just a secret hidden street. What could be better than that? Absolutely. The rest of your books are also very rooted in the real world. And this kind of plays with, I don't know what we want to call it, like magic, the supernatural. Was that fun and free? Was that difficult? <laughs> it definitely was. I was definitely apprehensive. I was nervous about it, particularly because my father writes genre fiction. He writes horror novels. And I know from his perspective and from, I would say, the perspective of like his posse, that real genre writers don't like it. I, if this might be an overgeneralization. You know, I would say real genre writers don't like it when otherwise literary novelists come tromping along and be like, oh, maybe I'll write, maybe I'll write a novel. <laughs> and so I really I wanted to make sure that I was doing it in a way that wouldn't offend the sensibilities of people who are really devoted science fiction readers. I had a long conversation with one of my dad's best friends who is a critic and a professor and like a deep, deep 
science fiction and genre head. He said, you know, time travel doesn't just belong to science fiction anymore. Like time travel really belongs to everyone because it's been used so many times in so many ways. It's been released to the world already. And he said, the only thing that you have to do is make sure that you're following your own rules. <laughs> Meaning like that I had to be crystal clear for myself, what the rules of this time travel situation were, and then I could play with it. And then once I figured out what that was, which was what I called solving time travel, <laughs> once I solved time travel, then the experience of writing it was more analogous to writing all of my other books where I was like, what are these characters thinking, feeling, doing? Where are they trying to go? What am I trying to do? Rather than like getting bogged down. What I really wanted to avoid with this book was making things too complicated. Like it's not about time travel is a tool, but it's, it's not what the book is about. Yeah. It's like, it's like 13 going on 30 time travel, not like yeah. really deep science fiction time travel. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like your, I think you said your dad's friend said it's, I don't know if you, you would never call 13 going on 30, a science fiction movie necessarily, but it still aids in the storytelling perfectly. The only way it could. Do you remember when like, Rachel McAdams was in five time travel movies? She's been in so many. My, this is not a like scientific uh, study, but like my personal data set is that Rachel McAdams and Keanu Reeves together have been in like one million time travel movies. And I don't know what it is about the two of them. I don't know. That's a good question. Perfect bone structure. I do you think that they're really into time travel or do you think that they just keep getting... <laughs> is Rachel McAdams just like a time travel wonk? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, because you would think that at some point she would be like, enough. agent, I have had enough. <laughs> like, stop sending me the time travel things. But on the other hand, <laughs> in the time travel movies that Rachel McAdams is in, she is always the girlfriend. She's always the partner. You're so right. She doesn't do the time traveling, which is why she is on my list to star in the film adaptation of This Time Tomorrow because she's the right age. She's perfect. She obviously loves time travel, but she has not done it herself. So Oh, now this has to happen. I'm working on it. This actually makes me think, did you then avoid time travel movies and shows when you're writing because you didn't want to sort of like get your own rules for the book confused? Or were you like, give me all the 27 Rachel McAdams films? No, I was like, give me all of them. Give me all of them. I mean, because I'd seen them all already, you know, and I'd read so many time travel books I poured it all in because just like you were saying, Olivia, like it's my, my thought was like, if this happened to me, I would turn to my best friend in high school and pull her into the bathroom and be like, something is happening to me. And I don't know if it's like a back to the future thing. That is what I would do. I would scroll through in my mind, all of the possibilities until I figured out what it was. And, you know, I've always tried to keep pop culture stuff out of my books because just it dates things so precisely in a way that I don't like. And I don't know, it just, it, maybe it's like my MFA program training. I try not to do it, but with this book, it was the opposite. Like I just, dating it was the 
point. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, this is 1996. This is a person who was 16 in 1996. So like, this is her world and these are her reference points. And this, it's all, it all matters. Mm -hmm. And all of the things that all of, you know, the places that she sees when she walks down the street, those matter because they don't exist anymore in her life as a 40 year old, even though she still is in this same neighborhood and like, so yeah, I just like opened the doors and, and let all that stuff in this time. Awesome. Let's take an ad break. Today's podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Not only is BetterHelp more affordable than traditional therapy, it's also a great way to address and alleviate burnout in your life. For me, one of the biggest red flags that burnout is starting to creep into my life and that it's time to talk to my therapist about it is lack of focus. When I find myself spending time in a social media scrolling black hole or watching mindless television instead of working on basically anything productive, then I know I'm experiencing burnout. It's a horrible feeling, but I didn't realize until recently that it's something that can be addressed in therapy. Burnout is also something that can be caused by so much more than just work, contrary to common belief. The other thing that makes burnout tricky is that it can be difficult to know exactly what's causing those feelings of detachment, fatigue, and more. BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you to figure out the root cause of your stress. I used to think that therapy was only about discussing major traumatic life events or emotions, but some of the most impactful therapy sessions I've had have been all about addressing more everyday issues like burnout. No matter what you're struggling with right now, it's always a good idea to prioritize yourself and your mental health. And BetterHelp has therapists that you can match with in less than 48 hours. What's more, Bad on Paper listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash bad on paper. That's B E. T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash bat on paper. Can we switch gears to books or magic? Yes, ma'am. How and when did owning a bookstore come into your life? <laughs> yeah, like when did I decide that having one job was too easy and I needed <laughs> another one? So in the fall of 2016, we moved back to Cobble Hill really because I was so pregnant and <laughs> it was suddenly very, 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 very important to me that I'd be able to walk to a bookstore. And so we moved back to Cobble Hill where we had lived before next to book court where I had worked in my twenties. And then a few months later, they told us that they were closing. And I was like, oh my God, this can't be, this can't be like I, we just moved back here <laughs> so that I could walk to the bookstore. My husband and I had always had a really foggy fantasy of taking over for them when they retired, but we had never run a business before, whatever, but it just, none of that mattered. The owners told us that they were closing in October of 2016. They closed on New Year's Eve that year. And then we rented our space in February of 2017 and we were open May 1st. So it was really fast. Yeah. I mean, it is wild. And I, I have learned more owning the bookstore than I ever could have learned in the last five years. It has changed my life so utterly. 
And it has been the hardest job in the world. And, and like, I'm not even talking about like, you know, the pivots necessary during the pandemic. I mean, that stuff has been really challenging, but just running a small business period and having employees and learning how to manage a retail space is just, it's really hard. I love it. I love my bookstore. I am so proud of it. And it is such hard work all day, every day. (laughs) What do you think has been like the most unexpected aspect of it? Either good or bad or both? Yeah. I mean, I guess the most unexpected aspect of it really is how profoundly it has like changed the way I encounter the world. Mostly because I would say our staff is young and they are, you know, I mean, there's, there's a range. I would say for the last five years, so many people in their twenties on staff, I'm 42 now. So everyone I knew was sort of my age or children. And it's been really amazing to to spend a lot of time with people who are in their 20s because I just, I have learned so much about being a human being and the way the world is like marching forward. And I'm so grateful because I feel like if I didn't spend this time with them, I would really just be in my own little bubble in my very safe self-protected little bubble. And it's been amazing. My worldview has expanded exponentially. And I'm really grateful for that. I'm very curious. Do you think that that generation's reading habits are different? Like how they approach books? Or do you think it's... Oh, no. I mean, they're amazing readers. They're amazing readers. And, you know, I mean, there certainly are things that I think are sort of inherent to that age whether it's reading the cool new sort of sexy book, you know, which the 1980s would have been like Donna Tartt and Brady Snellis in the 90s would have been like, like Zadie Smith. I don't know. And like, then it's Sally Rooney, you know, like I love how excited my booksellers get over the writers who they love. And it's just, yeah, it's sweet. And I don't mean that in like a patronizing way at all because they are so much smarter than I am. But like, it's just, it's just wonderful to watch them share books with each other and talk to each other about books. It's just, it's great. It's great. I'm very lucky to be surrounded by these amazing, amazing humans. They sound great. I love that whole answer. So I want you to break down for us. Can we talk about Amazon versus indie booksellers? And can you talk to me about price specifically? So you go on Amazon and a book is $12, let's say, and then you you go into a bookstore and it's $26. So how does that pricing happen? And where do the dollars go when you spend more on a book at an indie bookstore? Oh, what a beautiful question, Becca. I love this question. Okay. So the reason that the books are like half as expensive on Amazon is because Amazon doesn't give a shit about selling books. They don't care about selling books. They are trying to sell you a book and a lawnmower and your concealer and garbage bags. They are just trying to be the easiest point for as many people as possible. They don't pay taxes. They obviously don't support their employees. They just want 
to, you know, send Jeff Bezos into space in his rocket. Whereas independent bookstores pay taxes, which supports their local schools and their local communities. You know, we employ, you know, right now, I think we have 13 employees, maybe 14. We pay them as much as we can. And we care about them so deeply and we care about our community and we think about our community. Like we choose books based on what we care about. Like we don't sell books by monsters, you know, like there are so many books published by absolute monsters that are published every day in 2022. There are books full of lies that are like just rotting, like giving people brainworms, you know? And the thing about independent bookstores is that we choose every book that we sell, which means that we are curating books for our customers, whether those customers are coming into the store or ordering from our website, we are introducing our customers to writers who we care about, who we want to support. We try to give the writers we love the biggest platform possible. We host events. You know, we have authors come in and sign books. Also, you can come if you are like a parent or a caregiver. We have a changing table in our bathroom. You know, like Amazon does not have a changing table for you for free. (laughs) (laughs) They certainly don't. (laughs) The one thing I didn't hear you talk about in that answer was the impact to authors. What does it mean for an author's money or for their chances for the New York Times bestseller list to buy at an indie versus Amazon. I frankly feel like the New York Times bestseller list is like this weird big boogeyman that like nobody understands <laughs> it how it works. Anytime yeah. I ask anyone about this on the podcast, they're like, yeah. nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. I mean, what I, well, I'll tell you what I know, which is just that any independent bookstore can report to the New York Times. Not everyone does. It used to be more of a pain and now it's quite easy. I think in the days before everything was computerized, it was quite a pain, but now it's like you push a button basically. But yeah, I mean, for, I mean, the New York Times bestseller is a mystery because what I understand to be true is that they do weigh things differently. So they do sort of weigh things that are sold in independent bookstores more heavily than on Amazon. And if you look at the New York Times bestseller list, you will sometimes see the little dagger next to a title, which means that it was all bulk buys. So like, you know, if you see on the list, there's like, let's just say like, you know, Donald Trump Jr.'s uh, uh, thrilling memoir or whatever, um, there'll be a little dagger there which means that he bought 200,000 copies or had some foundation buy 200,000 copies, which is why it's there. Wow. I never knew that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I learned that on Younger. Oh, maybe. Yeah, there you go. Younger. <laughs> full, full of, full of, um, full of great publishing insight. <laughs> yeah. I mean, other than that, it, it is still mysterious though. The, the New York Times bestseller list. In terms of your average writer though, I, I would say most writers just want people to buy their books 
I think many writers care deeply about independent bookstores, but they also care deeply about just people having access to their work. And if someone feels like it's cost prohibitive to buy it at an independent bookstore, I think most writers understand that Amazon is a place where people go to buy books and they're fine with that. Yeah, I think it is. You know, of course, I am extremely biased, but I think it's important to support, especially like through these pandemic years, it is so important to financially support the things that you care about and want to see continue to exist. Because like how many places that you love did you see close in the last few years? So many, like it's just, it's not a given that places will survive. And so you, you really have to put your money where your mouth is or where your heart is. For me, that's an easy choice. How exactly do you run a bookstore and also write books? Like what is your daily schedule? How are you awake right now? Um... <laughs> <laughs> How much caffeine do you consume on a daily basis? I, I need to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it really depends. I mean, when we opened, I was in the bookstore every day for six months and not writing at all. When I'm really writing, I'll be in the store like, I'd say like two days a week. So like I'll write three days a week and be at the bookstore two days a week. And then when I'm like close to finishing or whatever, I might just not be in the store at all for a few weeks. But right now, because I'm not writing, I'm about to go on my book tour. So I'll be, we'll be at the bookstore. When I'm not writing for whatever reason, if, you know, I've turned in a book and I'm waiting on edits and things like that, then I'm in the bookstore all the time. So it depends. And I, you know, we've built up our staff in such a way that they don't need me every day. I'm like, you know, on Slack with them and I'm texting with them and I'm emailing with them all, all the time. And I have my like regular meetings that I have with the various teams every week. So I'm, you know, I try to make myself as available to the everyone on staff at the bookstore as, as humanly possible. But yeah, it's certainly an imbalanced choreography. Like my days are <laughs> wonky and wild. Yeah. Cause I do like, I want to give them as much of me as I can. Well, it's very impressive. So before we let you go, I feel like booksellers have the best under the radar recommendations. I love those recommendation cards in bookstores where somebody who's a human tells me why they love the <laughs> book. So I want to know what are some recent or upcoming books that you loved? Yes. So one that's out already, my pal Jasmine Guillory has a book called Buy the Book that came out last week. I think we all love Jasmine for her rom-coms. And this one is funny because it's in this series, contemporary rom-com writers retelling Disney fairy tales. <laughs> and so hers is Beauty and the Beast. And I loved it. Not least because people eat in the book. And when they eat... Oh, her food her, descriptions are always food. so She's great. She's so good. She does food better than anybody else. And in this book, people often have seconds. And I'm like, yeah, because <laughs> in life, when you make a lasagna, you don't just like eat one tiny piece of lasagna and then put it in the refrigerator. You go and you stand by the stove and then you eat more lasagna and then you put yes. it away. Um, so that's number one. Two... Is another rom-com that comes out June or July, The Dead Romantics. Have you read this? 
I have oh, no, I haven't my heard God, this. It's so good. Okay. The writer's named Ashley Poston. Is that right? You can fact check me. <laughs> I mean, it's got kind of like Emily Henry, you know, Emily Henry vibes. Only one of the characters is a ghost. It's great. <laughs> Say no more. Say no more. I'm already invested. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. I feel 100% confidence that you will love it. That sounds amazing. And then maybe one more. Okay. This one comes out in July by Gabrielle Zevin. It's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It does the same kinds of things as Michael Chabon's Cavalier and Clay and Meg Wollister's The Interestings, but it's about these two friends who make video games. I'm not a real video game player. I mean, I played the Oregon Trail a lot as a child, (laughs) and like now I have children who like to play video games, but it doesn't matter. Like, it's just, it's all about these two best friends working together creatively over decades. And it is so beautiful. And I cried so many times. I had to, on two separate occasions, I had to stop reading it because I was in public and I was crying too much. And I was like, this is inappropriate for this restaurant. Like I need to put the book back in my bag. (laughs) That's good to know though. It's good advice because that book is on my like pile right now. And you know, I'm not going to bring that into a public place where I don't want to be just snot rolling down my face. You'll be okay. I would say for the first like 200 pages, you're fine. You can read it anywhere. Okay, great. But after that, it's danger zone. Okay. Okay. Noted. Okay. Not a plane book. It's not a plane book. It's not a plane book. Okay. Got it. Emma, you have been such a wonderful and generous guest. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet and where they can get this time tomorrow? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You can find me on all the places. You can find me on my Instagram, which is Emma Straub. You can find me on my Twitter, which is Emma Straub. You can find me on my website, which is emmastraub.net. Because I'm, oh, it's good you clarified because, you know, people don't know. Dot net. Who has emmastrab.com? <laughs> like 15 years ago, when I made my website, it belonged to like an eight year old who like had made a school project. Wow. It's fine. It's wow. fine. Little did that eight year old know. Happy. <laughs> <laughs> and you can get this time tomorrow at any bookstore you choose. You can buy it from Books or Magic, which is my bookstore, and then I'll write you a little love note in it. But you can also buy signed copies from 246 other independent bookstores, and that whole list you can get to on my website. Also, can I just say, beautiful Amazing. book, beautiful cover, beautiful colors. Thank you. I loved it. It's shiny. It's gorgeous. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It was such a pleasure talking to you both. It was so fun. Let's get into some end matter here. Tell me about your obsession. My obsession is also a mistake I made, which was going on the Free People website ahead of a trip. I have a tendency to buy new clothes before trips. It's not my favorite trait about myself. It's certainly not sustainable for my finances. Uh, However, I got this free people dress in my newly shipment, which 
my newly shipment is supposed to be something that keeps me from spending money on clothes uh, and renting them instead. However, I loved this free people dress so much that I ended up going onto the website and placing a rather large order that I expected to mostly return and instead loved everything, which was great because I was like very excited to have things that I loved that fit me, but also put me in a bit of predicament in terms of not being able to return as much as I thought. So are you keeping it all or are you forcing yourself to return some things? I'm I'm returning one thing, but the rest just made me so happy. I couldn't. I couldn't. I don't know. I feel like it's so hard to find really unique like exciting pieces in my size sometimes. And when I go through like a couple months where I'm just like only finding like one thing, I get kind of down. And then when I find more, I feel like I need to spend the money. I don't know. Again, not my favorite trait about myself, but I am excited to wear some of the the items. So there's that. What is your obsession? Okay, this is a little strange. And I don't know if this is just me or if other people feel this way. So I'll tell you what the obsession is first, but I'll tell you what's weird about it. So I got these bowls from Anthropology. They're called the mini latte bowls, and they're like very small bowls, like almost like a condiment sized bowl. So not. Wait, I'm going to show you. So it's like this big. Oh, cute. Like here. Here it is next to my face. So you can for scale. Becca's face for scale. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> it's like a really thank tiny, you. I, it's it's a really tiny bowl. I had a couple of other ones, but one of them has been repurposed into being a salt cellar, and I broke one. So I realized that I really missed having mini bowls. Okay, so here's the weird thing: I love small serving vessels and utensils, like. Using, I would rather die than, that's dramatic. I would, I would, I'm going to stick with it. I would rather die than use the large spoons that like I have. Like I have large spoons for no reason. This, okay, I'm really glad that we're on the same page here because sometimes when I eat ice cream, which if I get Ben and Jerry's, I'm eating it straight out of the carton. I'm not putting that in a bowl. And sometimes Jake will bring it to me like if I'm on the couch and he'll bring me the large spoon. And I'm like, put this back. I am not eating the large spoon with this. It doesn't make any sense. It's got to be the small spoon. Got to be the small spoon. I feel the same way about forks. I will always use a salad fork rather than a large fork. But I'm less picky and I'll use the large ones if all the small ones are dirty. Um, But I love these little bowls. Like, for instance, putting a serving... A hand, like a handful of blueberries into a full-size bowl makes no sense to me. This is the right size for that. Yeah, it's it's true. Blueberries are very small. Yeah, like also candy. Putting candy in, in a small bowl like this. That, that is, I love that. Goldfish crackers. I am obsessed with my mini bowls. I haven't had a condiment situation, but I think they would be great for that too. That's a great point. They are very cute. I have little, I I thrifted them. They're like little ceramic dishes. And I love using them for just like when I'm cooking like little herbs, I just put it to the side or like just like a a smattering of almonds. Mise en place place bowls. I hadn't even thought of that. Yes. The possibilities here are really endless for the tiny bowls. They also, so I got 
the more neutral ones. The one I just showed you is brown. It's probably the ugliest one. But they do also have like fun color ones, too. Well, it's anthropology. So I'm sure they have like hand painted ones that have like corgis on them and something. I wish they did. I wish they did. But they don't. (laughs) I would have definitely gotten the corgi ones. Well, they're very cute. I'm glad that we found common ground on liking small utensils. Yeah, same. Okay, talk to me about books. So you spoke so highly about Flying Solo by Linda Holmes that I started it. And your description was dead on about it being cozy. I'm really enjoying this sounds like it's a dig at it, but it isn't. I'm really enjoying that it isn't addictive. Like I can read a few chapters and easily put it down. And it's it's so charming. It's really low stakes. And it's it is really the perfect complement to my like stressed mood of the past few weeks. Oh yeah, I'm glad you're enjoying it. It really is that you hit the nail on the head. It's it's very, yeah, low stakes, calming and pleasant. It is. It it so is. And so for everyone, if you don't remember, this was what Olivia was reading last week. It's by Linda Holmes who wrote Evie Drake starts over. It's set in a small town in Maine. It's about a woman who's just called off her wedding or not just, has in the last year called off her wedding. And she goes back to her hometown in Maine to clean out her great aunt's house, who has uh, passed on. And in the house, she finds this wooden duck, and she kind of gets sucked into a, a low-stakes mystery surrounding it. Yes, it's it's a good one. And it's not out until June, as an FYI. So you can pre-order it. What about you? My book, I'm just sitting here thinking about my book because it's basically the exact opposite of your reading experience. Oh, so it's stressful. <laughs> With the flying soul. It's, it's okay. So the book that I finished is Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel, who wrote, is it The Glass Hotel? Station Eleven is what she's more known for. Yes, Station Eleven. And I was like, oh, this won't be a pandemic book, but it somehow is pandemic-related and time travel related. Hmm. It spans from the 20th century to the 25th century. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of space talk. Ooh. I had to look up a summary of this and I just finished it last night. So that'll tell you how much of it I really understood. The writing is beautiful. There are parts of it. I was like, oh, that sentence, that paragraph was incredible. In terms of me understanding what was going on, I've never felt less intelligent. It was just there were so many characters, so much time travel. I didn't I didn't get it. I didn't connect with it. It was it was a difficult reading experience for me. But then there's all these glowing reviews. It, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. But I I think that if you're interested in reading this, and I did like Station Eleven, so if you like Station Eleven and are considering as well, I would suggest reading it perhaps in one sitting if you can, and in a paper physical book and not a Kindle. For some reason, the Kindle just kind of like took me out of it. And reading it so sporadically over the course of a week or two, it made it more difficult. But yeah, not for me. Well, You know what we do have to recommend is our May book club pick, Funny You Should Ask by Alyssa Sussman. 
The book is a celebrity normal person romance that follows this A-list actor who's about to become the first American James Bond, and he's being interviewed by a female journalist. The piece she writes about him goes completely viral. Once it's out, it is widely speculated that something romantic happened between the two of them over the course of the interview. And so the book is told in two timelines. The first timeline is while she's writing the original interview. And then the second timeline is 10 years later when we get to see what happened in their lives since then and how the interview affected both of them. No surprise, there's a romance. But there's also a lot more in there. I devoured this book. It gave me really strong The Idea of You vibes in some ways. And can't recommend it enough. Can't wait to discuss it with you. I can't wait either. If you all want to join us in the Facebook group, you can search Bad on Paper on Facebook. We would love to talk to you there. And you can find me at Olivia Mentor on Instagram. And I'm at Becca M. Freeman. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.